primary care knowledge boost, overactive bladder and continence issues in women. Hello everyone and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, We have Ian Pierce back with us today to talk about some more urological issues. Yeah, Ian's a urologist at MRI at Manchester Royal Infirmary and he did a fantastic job with the episode we did recently about um, recurrent urinary tract infections. Um, So we recommend that you check that out if you haven't, Um, as well as our chat with Mr Dan Burke that we did a few episodes ago about lower urinary tract symptoms in men as well. Yeah, um, both really good episodes. Um, So today we cover overactive bladder and continence issues in women. We go through the types of lower urinary tract symptoms in women and then drill down into what the definitions of what the common terms are, such as frequency, urgency and nocturia, before looking at the red flags to consider. Yeah, and then we um, throw some made up cases at him as well (laughs) to illustrate the approaches that he um, mentioned about overactive bladder and incontinence issues in terms of how to assess um, what investigations might be needed and management options for the different potential causes so we hope you enjoy uh so again you've been on the um on the podcast before to talk to us about recurrent utis and we've got you back again today so would you mind introducing yourself for any listeners that didn't hear that first episode yes absolutely and thank you for inviting me back so my name's ian pierce i'm a consultant urologist at manchester royal infirmary and i've been in post for almost 20 years uh, with a specialist interest in uh, functional and female urology so overactive bladder urine incontinence forms a big part of my work brilliant um so as i said last time we spoke to you about um recurrent utis and non-pregnant women and today is talking about the other l- lower urinary tract symptoms and um, particularly thinking about frequency urgency and incontinence issues in women so as a start can you tell us how you go about categorizing these lower urinary tract symptoms in women Yes, absolutely. So uh, traditionally, lower urinary tract symptoms or LUTs were, were sort of divided into so-called storage and voiding symptoms. But to be truthful, that those those terms really were generated for men. So to be truthful, most lower urinary tract symptoms in women are storage mediated. So they've got urinary frequency. They might get up at night to pass urine, have nocturia, might get that, that urgency and even urge-related incontinence. It's much less common for a woman to say, actually, I'm really straining to pass urine and I've got intermittent flow. It, it does happen, particularly with urethral stenosis, but it's much less common. So majority of them really are storage symptoms. Brilliant. And it's going right back to the basics, but I wondered if it would be useful to potentially define kind of what the symptom of frequency, urgency and incontinence is um, that, for women. So urinary frequency, daytime frequency obviously varies tremendously and varies on how, how much you would drink. So we would normally say that eight visits to the bathroom during the waking hours would be the upper limit of normal. So anything more than that would be urinary frequency. But, but that's really only half the picture. And we'll probably get onto uh, bladder diaries a bit later because it's not just the frequency. It's also avoiding that one passes at the same time. Uh, nocturia. Passing urine in the middle of the night and getting back to sleep afterwards, that, that's a nocturia episode. And of course, we shouldn't have any nocturia. So any nocturia really is abnormal. Excepting, of course, if you go out and have 10 pints, you might get up in the middle of the night to pass urine. That, that would be normal. So that's frequency nocturia. Urgency really is that sort of sudden and compelling desire to pass urine. So you, you can't finish what you're doing. You, you, know, you can't watch the end of the TV program or finish whatever it is you're writing. You've literally got to stop. Stop what you're doing and go straight away. And an occasion, and sometimes people will say, actually, 
I simply don't get there in time. Mm-hmm. So they have they have that what's classically termed as latchkey incontinence. They can hold and hold and hold, and it's almost as as they know they're about to make it. That's when they leave. That's really useful. Going back to basics, I'm going to be thinking how many <laughs> totting up how many wees I'm having now. <laughs> See yeah, if it's yeah. eight. <laughs> um, but yeah, really good. Um, so thinking about red flags for people with these symptoms, uh, what kind of red flags are there, um, and what kind of sinister diagnoses are we thinking about? So again, a bit like the uh, recruit UTI discussion there we mm-hmm. had, visible hematuria is obviously the ultimate red flag. And in this scenario, of course, you wouldn't be expecting dysuria, in which case visible hematuria would be referred on a two-week ways. If um, those patients who had persistent urgency symptoms that were resistant to uh, oral treatment, I think they would also, we would also have a, a higher index of suspicion for that. And again, uh, this concept of having bladder pain, particularly in the older age group. And you were explaining this to us before, so to check that we were listening and and that it went in, which are two different things. (laughs) Uh, True bladder pain is when it's not necessarily that something's pressed on the bladder, like a seatbelt or if you're pressing on it with your, your hand, it's actually it's pain around that suprapubic region that's not instigated by anything else. Yes, that's right. So it, it's not just when you press or wear a seatbelt, it's actually there. It's actually there. And again, typically when, when patients have got increasing amounts of, um, of urine inside the bladder. And, and it actually, it's quite a useful thing to talk about um, pain because people will often think that extreme urgency and pain are the same thing. But actually, those patients who experienced urgency will, will tell you, actually, it doesn't, it shouldn't really get painful unless they have got bladder pain syndrome. The urgency doesn't ever transcend into true pain. And yeah, there's the there's the other one that we had to remind ourselves about in the last episode, and we wrote it down again for this one just to uh, make sure we remembered. But it's the um, the one about non visible hematuria. So if someone's over sixty and they've got um, unexplained non visible hematuria and either dysuria or a raised white cell count on a blood test, then that's one of the two week criteria for for bladder cancer as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, really good point. I'm glad that we mentioned that one again, because hopefully by repetition, it'll sink in more. Um, Thinking about this slightly more subtle sideways um, potential red flag of of thinking of people with ovarian cancer um, that might get um, frequency, and and they're quite tricky to pick up. Are are there any kind of tips about the types of uh, lower urinary tract symptoms that these patients might get? It's a hard one, isn't it? That's that's a really interesting question because what, what we're really talking about is ex- extrinsic irritation of the bladder, yeah. which which we, we could also get from colonic tumours as well. So the the key there is that these, this group of patients very rarely respond to medication because, of course, medication is designed essentially to block receptors and to prevent blood, essentially bladder spasm. But of course, if it's, if it's something physical causing that, whether it's uh, an ovarian tumor, a bowel tumor, or even a bladder stone, that, that's not going to it's not going to work in those circumstances. So that's why, if you've got a patient with significant urgency urinary frequency that is resistant to medication, they probably do need investigation. That's a good tip for the kind of ones that aren't triggering from other sides, like the sort of bloating or anything like that. If it's just the urinary symptom, then sort of think having that index of suspicion. Yeah, and I guess it's like everything, isn't it? You look at the patient in front of you as well. Are they the, are they the correct age group? Have they got the correct risk factors for various other things? And that all, all adds to the, to your suspicion index, doesn't it? 
So we've got some cases um, which are um, made up, <laughs> but hopefully will work and happy for any feedback if we need to amend. But so our first case is Mary. Um, she's a 67-year-old retired musician. And she attends with um, frequency, so she's weighing twelve times a day, uh, and urgency. So as soon as she's she ha- as soon as she needs a wee, she has to get to the toilet, and it's been for over six months now. Actually, recently over the last few months, she's been suffering with incontinence. She's not been able to get to the toilet in time. Um, there's no dysuria. There's no frank hematuria. Um, and she's had no change in a bowel habit or fecal incontinence, um, no abdominal pain, bloating, weight, weight loss, none of that. Her only past medical history is of asthma and osteoarthritis, uh, for which she takes inhalers, a statin and gabapentin. So um, what would be your initial approach to Mary? I, I think the, f- the first step really is, is, is to try and attempt to quantify the magnitude of the problem. And so the classic thing would be, how often is she experiencing the incontinence? Is, is it literally every day? Is it once or twice a week? Does Is it significant enough that it requires her to wear pads? And if she does, how many pads will she wear in 24 hours? And um, what's the state of those pads? Because that's hugely variable. Some some people will change their pads when they're slightly damp. Others, by necessity, may only change them if they're completely soaking. So we're trying to build up a picture of what is the magnitude from an objective perspective of the problem. And then the other side of that coin is actually the subjective aspect. So what impact is it having on on Mary? What what impact on her quality of life is? It, does it does it stop her doing something? And, and and that's not uncommon actually. So they'll quite patients like this will quite often toilet map. They'll know where every toilet is, you know. And some of them may actually stop stop doing things. They may stay in for fear of leaking if they don't know where where they are and if they're in an unfamiliar surrounding. So we're looking to quantify and we're looking to find out what impact it's had on the patient. We we already know the, the duration. And we've thought about the other coexistent features such as dysuria. So because, as we said in the recruit UTI episode, it's not it's not uncommon for a urinary tract infection to cause transient urge related incontinence. It's because, of course, it's, it's an inflammatory condition. So all of these are important, but equally, the fluid habits are also important. OK, not just how much they're drinking, when are they drinking it and what exactly is it? So what is it? so? And I'm thinking, of course, of are they are they drinking seven or eight cups of coffee in the morning before they get out of bed? That sort of thing. Are they are they completely caffeine loaded? Are all the drinks all icy cold? Because we also know that a significant number of people don't like cold drinks. They they it triggers the bladder. Likewise, in winter, it's often bladders are often a bit more overactive and a bit more a bit harder to cope with. So it isn't just volume; it's also what makes up that volume. And at that point in time, what sort of differentials are going through your mind? Well, in honesty, for the for the case for this case, it it it, it seems pretty straightforward. You know, we've excluded all the hematuria, we've excluded any UTIs. Uh, you know, there's nothing else that's ringing alarm bells for us, and and it sounds very much like she, along with about twenty percent of the population in Europe, have, has an overactive bladder. So I think that looks fairly straightforward. We would obviously try, along with the history, to gain some level of knowledge about the bladder diary. So we, we'd ask them to do a bladder diary. You know, what goes in, what comes out, what time of the day. We still get quite a lot of people who complain of nocturia. And actually, when they when they set out what they drink, it's quite clear they have a couple of pints of water before they go to bed. And then they have another pint at three o'clock when they're up to go to the bathroom. So lots of it may be self-explanatory. So a, a, a bladder diary is really, really useful. 
Brilliant. Um, so continuing um, with Mary, we examine her abdomen. It's nice and soft. There's no tenderness anywhere. Um, her observations are all normal. Her urine dip is positive um, for leukocytes, but nothing else. So what would you want to do next in terms of investigations or assessments, uh, particularly in primary care? So the bladder diary that we mentioned would be really helpful because if your bladder on average will hold 400 mils, if the patient has a residual volume of 300 mils, then actually their functional capacity is only 100 mils. And hence they get urinary frequency all, all the time. So they're passing frequent but very small amounts. So that's a really helpful thing. It may also be that they've got a degree of bladder neck stenosis or urethral stenosis, which may be inhibiting their ability to empty their bladder. I think in primary care, as well as the bladder diary, it would be really great to be able to do a glucose to make sure they, they didn't have diabetes, make sure they don't have a UTI, as you already said, uh, and maybe also even a, a post-nutrition scan to assess their residual volume. I was thinking about the the type of scan that we'd ask for, because um, that post-nutrition bit, I don't know how often we we specify for it, but it's definitely a good learning point. When you are doing the scan for overactive bladder symptoms in women, particularly older women, would I would we request like an ultrasound KUB and an abdo pelvis? Or when if we want to try and look at their ovaries, not that I'm completely obsessed, but <laughs> um, just thinking about making sure that there's no there's no other signs in the pelvis as well. What would you recommend? I think um in the first instance, we would look, be looking just at their residual volume. So those very simple bladder scanners, which literally are one-trick ponies, that, that is essentially what we would use just to make sure they haven't got a residual volume. If their residual volume is uh, over 150, then that's when you start getting the, the potential risk of hydronephrosis. Much less common in women, of course, because their voiding pattern is completely different to men. But that's the level where you think, okay, let's just check their upper tract as well. So in terms of um, following Mary up now, in terms of investigations, she her MSU came back negative. Um, she's had a normal full blood count, including her white cells. And she's got a normal uh, use and ease and her CA125 is negative. Um, when when we get the ultrasound back, um, there's no abnormalities on this. And her po- post-void residual was 60 mils. Can we be confident in a diagnosis of overactive bladder at this stage? Yeah, I think so. And we, we've, we've done everything to exclude any precipitating events that may be causing a transient overactive bladder. She's had it for six months. You know, she's got no other red flag symptoms. There's nothing else in this. I, I think we'd be very safe in in giving her the diagnosis of an overactive bladder. Of course, that doesn't really explain why she's got an overactive bladder. And having excluded everything that we have so far, the only thing it would be really nice to know is whether or not she is really straining to empty empty her bladder. Does she have that element of uterine stenosis? Again, not particularly common. And actually, I think most women, if they were experiencing that, would actually volunteer it. But it's just nice to be absolutely certain. And then so thinking about initial management for Mary in primary care, what would we be starting with? So again, that would obviously be conservative first. So we'd be looking to uh, have a look at her caffeine intake to see if we could convert to decaffeinated tea and coffee and avoid fizzy fizzy drinks. Although you'd be pleased to know tonic water doesn't have caffeine in, of course, so... Gin and tonics are still okay. They're fine. But other, but other fizzy drinks usually have caffeine in. So we would usually say become caffeine free. 
If they're a smoker, of course, nicotine is the biggest bladder irritant, not just for an overactive bladder, but it also is the biggest risk factor for bladder malignancy. So again, if they're smokers, we ask them to stop smoking. I would always, uh, well, a nice guidance would tell everyone if their BMI is over 30, they should lose weight for both stress and urge-related incontinence. And pelvic floor exercises, again, they're applicable to both groups of women. So I would also ask them to do pelvic floor exercises. And then in small things, if, you, if you're going to drink water, try and drink tepid water or try and drink hot water. Don't drink it straight from the fridge. And more tailored then to the, the particular symptom that they may be complaining of. If they are complaining of nocturia, then obviously no nocturnal drinks. And it's not uncommon actually to try and restrict their fluid intake for three or four hours before they go to bed. And, and the final thing I say about nocturia is just to make sure you're fully empty before you go to bed. Try and go to the bathroom half an hour before you go to bed and then directly before you go to bed, just to ensure you're as empty as you could possibly be. That's really good. Excellent. Um, and then if you've kind of, you've gone through the conservative management, she's come back, it's not really helped. Where would you go next? Well, I think we would offer an anti-muscarinic or a beta-3 agonist. Now, the choice is is difficult. I, I think probably the future will see that beta-3 agonist will become the mainstay of treatment because we're not adding to the anticholinergic burden. I, I think that's the direction of travel. And certainly if patients were over 70, I would start them straight on a beta-3 agonist. If they're under 70, I'd probably give them an anti-muscarinic first. Uh, so learning points from the last episode so anti-muscularinics we're talking about the the oxybutynin or the tolterazine uh, type medications other medications are available <laughs> uh, and then the, the beta 3 is it agonist did you say yes absolutely and that's mirabegron at the moment Mir- mirabegron but it is it's incredibly effective and obviously no anticholinergic burden um, and then thinking about referring on, um, which patients do you want to see in clinic? And also, who would you like to see and who should we be referring more to urogynecology? The second part of that is a really interesting question because I, I think I'd have to say that urogynecology and urology, that is their very common ground. So reasonably, you could send them to either if it was a straightforward case of an overactive bladder. The only thing I'd say is that if there's any suspicion at all of something else going on, then they ought to come to urology. Um, and who, who should we see? I think obviously anybody who's got red flag and anybody who is unresponsive to, to anti-muscarinic therapy or beta-3 agonist therapy. But of course, they would need really to take that. NICE would tell you that you should review them at sort of four, six weeks time. But of course, in the NHS, that's, that's, that's quite impractical. So it wouldn't be uncommon for people to have three months of treatment before stepping up to the next thing. So I think if they're unresponsive to that, then we would wish to see them there. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so we will maybe move on to our next case for you. Um, so this is Susan. Um, she's come in the day after Mary. Um, and she's a 52-year-old teacher with three children who has suffered for uh, several years with episodes of urinary incontinence on coughing, laughing and sneezing type um, activities. And she mentions them after a consultation for another problem and says that she hasn't mentioned them before because she thought they were something she just had to put up with, uh, but they're actually affecting her quality of life now. She's got mild frequency, but no dysuria and no hematuria and no weight changes or abdominal pain, no fecal incontinence, bowel changes or bloating. So what what are you thinking um, and what approach would you take? Obviously, thinking stress incontinence secondary to multiple pregnancies, which is obviously the, the biggest risk factor uh, for this worldwide. Sounds with that degree of frequency that she may have a mixed picture, which again is, is not uncommon. 
and, and we'll probably talk about that a bit later on, but from the description, it seems like stress incontinence is the dominant feature. And in the same way that we'd look through for someone who's got age-related incontinence, we, we need to know, we're looking at how do we quantify that? So again, pad usage, what, what are the pads like? How long has it been going on for? And more importantly, what impact is it having on a patient? Because there isn't really, there isn't a threshold above, you know, of incontinence above which we should act. It's all related to the patient. It's what the patient's experiences and the impact on them, really. So that, that, they're the key things. Yeah, we were talking in the um, men's lots um, episode about that. Th- that's the most useful bit of the IPSS, the International Prostate uh, Score, that where it was saying if you had to live with this, um, if your urinary condition exactly as it is for the rest of your life, how happy would you be? I, I think all of those, all those questionnaires have sort of added that quality of life because that actually that, that's the ultimate most important thing for a patient. Everything else, to be truthful, is almost done for the medical profession to say, look, we've increased this by X to Y. But actually, that's not what the patient wants. What they want is the, their impact, isn't it? So thinking of the, the next steps for, um, for Susan, would it be fairly similar to your approach for the overactive bladder, the urge incontinence in terms of um, kind of assessment, or would you do anything differently? Yeah, I think the assessment is pretty similar. Well, or should I say the history is pretty similar, but also we'd like to know what it is the most that is triggering the bouts of incontinence. So is it when she's running? Is it when she's coughing and sneezing? And that also allows you to sort of get the idea of how common it is. Clearly, if it's if it's coughing, that's probably more common than going on a trampoline. So, you know, we'd like to get the scenario and, and figure out what it is. So it's all about uh, quality of life and impact on that patient. But other than that, yes, very similar. But one thing I would add that I, I perhaps forgot to add before is that the other thing that's really important is patient aspiration. In other words, where do they want to end up after their after their treatment journey? Are they looking to be bone dry or are they looking to be significantly better and therefore able to go out and play tennis or, you know, hold their grandchildren, that sort of thing. So knowing where they are and where they want to end up is often very useful because if you've got somebody who has got absolutely rampant incontinence, then actually having a positive impact on that patient's life is much easier than somebody who is leaking one or two drips, which becomes quite difficult. So Knowing where they start, where they want to end up is, is a really important thing uh, and helps us give a, a much more realistic level of counselling and expectation for them. Otherwise, yes, very much the same. Always uh, look to weight loss if needed. Always look to pelvic floor exercises. And of course, the pelvic floor exercises might be with or without physiotherapy supervision, depending on the patient's local access. Smoking, I think we all tell everyone to stop smoking. So we sort of say that uh, whether it's directly needed or not. And, uh, you know, in terms of caffeine, in truth, probably won't have a huge impact. But if if a patient's got frequency as this lady has, I would still tell her to stop that too. So, yeah, but very similar, really. Uh, so we do some investigations for Susan and her full blood count is normal, including her white cells and normal user knees. Um, so do you think this patient needs an ultrasound scan? If it was a post-nutrition scan, yeah, because I think everyone at Lurichak should have a post-nutrition scan. But I don't I don't think there's any indication in the absence of hematuria or recurrent UTIs or a large residual volume. Then there's no real indication to scan the upper tracts, I don't think. And um, are we happy that this is stress incontinence? Is there anything else that we need to think about? Yeah, I think we need to think about whether or not this is mixed incontinence. So yes, it obviously is stress, but there's clearly an element of frequency. And quite often, if you have a very dominant feature, 
then it's quite difficult for the patients to describe urgency uh, and their urgent consonants. So at the back of my mind is it, I'm wondering whether this patient may have both. Now, that that's not the end of the world, but obviously uh, if you were to try and do any surgical treatment, for example, for stress incontinence, it may well exacerbate overactivity and urgency. So it's important to know what, what's going on before we offer any irreversible therapy. Uh, and the, and the, usually the fundamental principle is that if you've got mixed incontinence, we would the first thing to treat would be the most dominant symptom. And I know you have talked us through about this, but just for, for completeness and order, I'm going to ask again. Uh, so can you talk us through the, the initial management of stress incontinence in females? So uh, initial management would be conservative. So weight loss and pelvic floor exercises. If they are smokers, I tell them to stop smoking. It will improve their, their pelvic floor. And of course, their pelvic floor exercise could be physiotherapy supervised. Obviously, if there are other things going on, if they are chronically asthmatic and they're very poorly controlled and they're coughing repeatedly, then you can, that it can be tackled that way as well. But that's probably not going to take them exactly where they need to be. But yeah, useful to think about the, the trigger actually and if you can solve it as well. And if that conservative management hasn't worked and they have been really good and they have been doing their pelvic floors and they've been working really hard, where would we go next? Well, then, then we're looking at, uh, at secondary care, of course, because then we're looking for something a bit more invasive, such as bulking agents or, or surgery. There, there, is a, there is a tablet, uh, duloxetine, which sometimes given out, but actually, if I'm honest, it's, it's not that great um, and really is only reserved for those patients who've got retractable incontinence who are, who are simply unfit for anything else. Which, which actually nowadays is, is is few and far between because bulking agents can be given under local anaesthetic. So, you know, that that cohort, if you like, that would be suitable for medical treatment isn't, isn't very big. So in terms of the duloxetine, it would mostly be uh, they've not responded to conservative refer and then see the assessment and then you might consider duloxetine? If only if they couldn't, they were unfit for absolutely anything. Okay. I mean, I, I think the dry rate in the duloxetine trials was only 9%. It's not. It's not that good, and I, and I think nice uh, and all the guidance would be only if they're completely unfit and couldn't have anything else. So, if I'm honest, uh, I, I I don't use that. And I think you've answered this, but just thinking about referrals for yourselves, because um, lo- locally in Wigan we do have a, a physiotherapy led service for incontinence. But who would you like to see in clinic? So anybody who has tried all the conservative measures and has had proper pelvic floor exercise tuition and has good compliance they're not they're not the easiest things to comply with actually um, but if they if patients can be persuaded to comply then actually they're incredibly effective so those people who have tried that and haven't got anywhere and who would also consider surgery okay it's quite difficult isn't it to go through the ream of investigations of a person that actually doesn't want surgery and, and we do we do see people like that of course so given that there isn't really a halfway house between conservative and in surgery, it would be much more useful if the people we saw were actually up for having surgery. Fit for the bulking agents, the local anaesthetic. Yeah. I mean, they don't have to be done under local. I would have them under general, but I think if they're, if they're unfit for general, then local is um, I think you've answered this one because we were going to say that we've discussed two cases where it was we tried to keep them as as a uh, cut and dry as just one type of you know urgent yeah. consonants versus stress incontinence, but actually in reality it's often a mix. Um, but you've help- helpfully kind of answered that in terms of you'd, you'd treat the predominant symptom. Yes, that that's right. And um, but it's also important once you've treated the dominant symptom to reassess. Yeah. Because one of the things that is often said is that the bladder is an unreliable witness. Love that. That's great. (laughs) 
it's not always clear cut what's going on. And the patient may say it's this, but actually it may be something completely different in, in testing. So. so always reassess? Yeah, always reassess. Um, so just to end then, as we did last time, would you mind um, telling us what your take-home points are? Yes, absolutely. So first thing, of course, is um, exclude the red flags and other causes of transient incontinence, such as urinary tract infection. I think it's really important to understand the impact on the individual patient and what their aspirations for their their outcome is so you can have a realistic conversation with the patient. Pelvic flow exercise and weight loss, I, I think they should be universal. That should be universal advice for, for women with low urinary tract symptoms. And finally, as we've said, if you've got, if there's a mixed picture, then we'll treat the dominant type first and then, and then reassess. Lovely, lovely and clear. Thank you so much, Ian. Not at all. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So it was great speaking to, um, to Ian again, having back to talk to us about some more urology. Um, what did you take away, Sarah? That's another amazing one, wasn't it? Um, yeah, so um, I'm really glad because it was you that asked the question about just actually defining what what frequency actually means and what um, urgency actually means so I was actually really happy that you asked that just to sort of quantify it um, and then also that we're, we're not expecting any noctura in women which is interesting um, but also then um, when he went through the red flags the thing about um, treatment resistant symptoms as well and and defining true bladder pain I thought that was quite interesting I don't really hear massively about true bladder pain but it's clearly quite a concerning symptom because it cropped up in both episodes as well yeah exactly it was useful for him to go over that again i think and then also just um for me it was the reiteration about um the usefulness of a bladder diary um quantifying that intake and output and um and also quantifying um things in terms of pads um so just mm. getting kind of hard numbers to be able to get an idea of of how much this actually is um and um the pattern for someone you can see is quite useful yeah, definitely. He was very nice about the cases, but actually they're, they're good cases, but they've not actually got any kind of substance to the initial presentation, like the history of the presenting complaint. <laughs> so yeah, it's all that kind of uh, actually quantifying it and how much of an impact it's having on people's lives. I also really liked when he did, uh, when we were talking about management of, of overactive bladder, when we were talking about conservative management and just going through everything, um, warmer water or tepid water. But but the thing about nocturia, not that I'm obsessed, but... <laughs> Um, but about having advising patients to have uh, a wee about 30 minutes before bed, wasn't it? And yeah. then another one just before they go to bed. Yeah. That's a really good tip. Yeah. Yeah. Make it's sure you're fully empty. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. And then also in terms of the conservative management, um, I thought it was useful just to think about weight loss again, because you're right. You can mechanically and physically, you can see how that would make a difference. I think it's something that um, I would have often overlooked, but it's, it's useful to just reiterate again to think about weight loss. Yeah, because Dan Burke in the um, uh, Lutz Symptoms for Men was talking about that, that they can make a huge impact on um, on people's symptoms as well. So yeah, that was really good. Mm. And then um, um, I loved when he was talking about the bladder as an unreliable witness. Yeah. <laughs> that um, it might, it's often a mixed picture and bringing people back in to see how their symptoms are. I mean, not only does that also help in terms of if it's treatment resistant symptoms, but also looking at treating both potentially as well. Yeah, you're right. As I'd written that down as well. Reassess bladder is an unreliable witness. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was interesting to discuss the medical treatments of overactive bladder as well um, and the potential side effects with the um, anticholinergic medications particularly given all the polypharmacy and with older patients as well because that's often quite a tricky um, equation, isn't it? 
Yes, um, you're right. And we did actually want to see what our local guidelines are in primary care here in Manchester. So the GMMG states um, not to prescribe oxybutynin into frail or elderly patients. Um, and for older people who are being prescribed anti-muscarinic drugs, the anticholinergic burden score should be calculated and the risk of cognitive dysfunction estimated. So GMMG have tolteridine or oxybutynin as the anticholinergics of choice. And then the beta-3 receptor agonist Mirabegron is third-line treatment if those first ones aren't tolerated or appropriate. Um, but we've put a link to those guidelines and an anticholinergic burden calculator into the episode description for people um, to be able to use. Yeah, it was interesting having a bit of a play around with that um, calculator just to see. Uh, often it looked like if you're going to prescribe one of the uh, anticholinergic drugs on top of one that they were already on, then it was just like, okay, just abandon it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, have a play around. It is really interesting. And it just also, um, they've got different charts for how much the burden is. So they put it in different categories. In fact, um, we did link to it, uh, another one in the delirium episode as well. Uh, so it's useful for everything. <laughs> um, I also found it really useful um, to think about the review process afterwards because um, it, I don't know how often... I'm looking after people's blood pressure yes. as well as I should be when I'm when I'm starting these. It's not the first thing that I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of reviewing them. Uh, and sometimes I'd think about doing a remote consult perhaps to check if they're getting on okay with it. Um, but yeah, it's that blood pressure, um, thinking about their blood pressure a bit more was really useful as well. Yeah, we're really happy. It was an excellent episode. So if you'd like to get in touch, you can. There's lots of ways to do it. You can uh, contact us. We've got some different ways you can do it on the episode description. Um, we particularly like the survey being filled out, but any any which way you fancy um, or say hello on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And we love getting feedback. And thank you for everybody who gets in touch with us. Um, it does make our day when we get um, contact from a listener. So keep it up, please. <laughs> Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.